0: So, Kevin, we started a newsletter this week.
1: I know. I, got, I was surprised. I got that in my mailbox.
0: You may have seen that it was Mail Kimp, the newsletter that we started. We got a lot of emails about that.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Not a sponsor. But happy to use their email. You product. know,
1: when I, I, I like to say, when you hear a sponsor on a podcast, <laughs> you should patronize them to show your thanks.
0: Well, it was easy to send the email. All I did was I emailed everybody who had ever emailed us
1: that we still have records of.
0: That we still have records of, yeah. yes. But we do have this newsletter now. If you're interested, listeners, in getting an inside look into the podcast, getting to know us a little better, maybe getting extra material once in a while, you should sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at our website.
1: Did you uh, send a, an email to that that Nigerian prince who wanted to invest? <laughs> I he think, emailed us.
0: I think he unsubscribed. <laughs> oh, it's <that's> too bad. <laughs> Well, in just one day, we approximately doubled our subscriber list because people said that they loved it. From two this. to four? <laughs> no, it was like from a couple hundred to a few hundred. Okay. It was pretty exciting, actually. So get
1: what your friends are and sign up for this uh, this newsletter.
0: At CrimeWritersOn.com, you can do that. And also, in the newsletter, you can find out information about upcoming events, upcoming books we have coming out, like the book we have coming out on March 1st. Yeah,
1: this is a big deal for us. This is our book called Dark Heart. It's going to be in stores March 1st, but we're really pushing pre-sales. If you were thinking that maybe you would buy, order from your favorite bookseller ahead of time, because um, you know, just like a like a movie premiere, like a big opening week is very important for authors. It keeps the books on the shelves. And it demonstrates to the publishers that, hey, uh, these guys have a following.
0: It does. We've also asked our publisher, by the way, if they would consider doing an audiobook of our books. We've gotten a lot of requests about that. I don't know if they will, but maybe if we sell a bunch of books, they will start doing audio books. I don't know. Us.
1: Maybe we'll have to storm the, the offices in New York with signs and everything. <laughs>
0: like an Occupy um, no, it's like Wall like a, Street
1: project? No, it's like Elvis Costello got his uh, contract by busking out in front of uh, Columbia Records uh, in London. You're
0: you, getting way off topic. No, i <laughs> That's why you can edit it out. <laughs> That's true. I can't edit it out. And of course, you can also support this podcast by doing what you're probably doing anyway, which is shopping, shopping on, on Amazon. Amazon. Instead of just shopping on Amazon, though, you have to use the link at crimewriterson.com. People
1: know that already. Bookmark it.
0: Use it for all your shopping. If you want to hear what some of you bought this week using that link, we've got good news.
2: Toby has a list. Parvati Fragrance. Goddess of Perseverance, 0.33 ounces, Perfume Roll-On. Newest version, solid pin car mini wireless Bluetooth, CSR 4.0, earphone, earbud, headset, headphone with microphone and hands-free for iPhone 6S Plus. Pro Women. Probiotics for women with cranberry extract and 100% naturally occurring D. mannose. 15 times more effective than capsules with patented delivery. Tassimo. King of Joe espresso. Pure encapsulations. Same. S adenosylmethionine, 9 sixty capsules. I should probably do that one again.
0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about Serial, Season 2, Episodes 7 and 8, Hindsight, Parts 1 and 2. Joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Rebecca, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.
0: Covering everybody there. Everybody. Covering, covering your bases. Yeah. Uh, hello, Australia, by the way. And on the line with us also is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator and licensed PI, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also joining us is noir novelist and apex devil's advocate, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby.
1: Hello. Do we have to come back again tomorrow morning and do the same thing 24 <laughs> hours later like, like Sarah did? Or can we just make this one big episode?
0: Well, we should talk about that because, Kevin, we did plan on taping Thursday night. We were psyched. We were going to get it done, you know, drop an episode maybe early Saturday like, yeah, morning. This is how we
1: get things done. And then... Boom. I at the DM text like, "No! Stop <laughs> Cancel. We can't do that." Cancel
0: the studio reservation. What did you think when you saw it was going to be a two-parter in one week, Kevin?
1: I was I was intrigued why that would have to be. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first got it, I'm you know, like, "Oh, it's a 38 minutes, okay." So, well, that's a shorter. It's I don't think it's the that's shortest. Actually,
0: it's actually a standard length episode for Serial season 1. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's so I'm like, "Okay." But yeah, I was really blown away that, you know, because the the idea of Serial is that it's, you know, one story told continuously episode after episode stitched together so already when they said part one why they're connecting two particular episodes I thought was uh, was peculiar and then that the fact that we're just gonna you know one week it's we're gonna be doing this every other week now and we're now we're gonna give you two days in a row so I don't know I think maybe that together if you add the time it was probably an 80 plus minute episode and I guess Sarah unlike us who you know, we don't mind dropping a mega episode on people. I guess just thought it would be better to chew it in two different bites.
0: Well there are there are sort of public radio formatics that sort of say you can't have something be over an hour. Yeah, but and also sort of that, that also says blood. you can't
1: quote the big Lebowski saying, Walter, you're an asshole.
0: <laughs> that's true. Toby, do you think that there was a narrative reason to divide this episode into two parts?
2: I mean it it does end up like working out well for them. That's sort of pre military and, and then military. I think that's the way it broke down. It's also interesting that I think they're almost identically the same length. Mm -hmm. When I listened to the second one, my question was why they didn't just do one. Maybe they get double the sponsor
0: dollars. I, I wonder, Laura, and I was thinking of you, I think a big part of this is getting people to want to tune in again next time. And would episode seven and sort of what we would have been teased out for episode eight have been enough to make us excited to tune in two weeks from now? Or did they just drop these two so that you know they could get this whole part of the story out of the way and then move on with the next thing that would make us want to tune in and I, I thought of you Laura because you've been talking about switching back and forth between wanting to listen to the next one and being like meh so what do you think about that
3: yeah actually that's what the, i was just thinking um I, you know this sort of for me built a little bit more anticipation in terms of tuning in immediately the next day and i think you know the first episode kind of gave us some insight into Bo. So we're all still sort of speculating as to are we actually gonna get some sort of mental health diagnosis? Are we actually gonna get a concrete answer? And then I think with that question in mind, waiting to hear the next episode, for me, I you know, I got up first thing as soon as my son got on the bus and listened to it. So I think looking at how Sarah is very effective at sort of leading her listeners, um, flipping us back and forth in terms of what we're thinking from week to week, this was a a different way of doing that in terms of just drawing us in and making us want to listen again so
0: quickly. You know, one of the things that Kevin said, he started episode one a little sooner than I did. And he texted me, I think, and said, Sarah really comes out swinging at Bo at the beginning of episode seven. So we are going to talk about episode seven first, and then we're going to switch and talk about episode eight. So let's just try to stick with episode seven for a few minutes here
1: we'll get to that we'll, as Sarah would say,
0: we'll get to that as she would say yes exactly she really kind of comes out of the gate kind of hard I'm um, Kevin what did you mean by that first
1: oh well I thought you know the first you know whatever couple of minutes of episode let's we'll call them episode one or part one okay, okay? Part one. so we get confused on the numbers Yeah, that she really was laying out the case against him again and sort of being the voice of all those people who have had doubts or suspicions about his motives or about his story and I, I was like, wow, OK, she's going at it. And maybe this is this sets up a, a different narrative for this particular episode. I think in the end, what we've seen is she's probably trying to, for once and for all, take as much of that as she could, lay it on the table one last time so that she can, to some extent, refute it in part two. Or let
0: others refute it. Or let it.
1: others refute it in part two, and then move on to the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think now we're, we're saying that, okay, the story is more than just Bo Bergdahl. It is about the entire tale of how he went missing and what we did to get him back. And we haven't heard a lot about what we did to get him back. And that's still part of the story that we have to get to. But but if we keep lingering on who Bo Bergdahl is and where we're still it's still kind of a distraction to the rest of the story as it has been all season
0: right and I think she sort of promised in the beginning of the first episode when she said we're gonna talk about what he said and we're gonna get in later into whether or not what he said is true or might not be true this Mm -hmm. was sort of the delivery of that thing she promised I think way back in episode one but my question is and this is kind of what I was thinking when I was listening to it Laura do you think that her kind of coming out hard at Bo this way did it feel like texturally consistent or texturally out of place, given her previous reporting in this story?
3: You know, it actually reminded me of season one of Serial, where we were getting more of sort of an insight into what Sarah was thinking as she was reporting and felt it actually felt more authentic to me. And I think, you know, she was bringing forward what a lot of people are thinking. But I think it did help set up both of these episodes, because, you know, when you look back at it, she's kind of pointing out, you know, we're we're hearing a lot about Bo's rigid thinking. And then in the end, the people that are on the flip side, the people that are sort of judging Bo, she's also pointing out their rigid thinking. So I found that sort of ironic. It was very interesting. What did you think of this, Toby? This idea of Sarah coming at it from both sides
0: and in part one, really kind of coming out against Bo a little bit and just kind of laying it out
2: there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I agree with Laura to an extent, but I, you know, I think it's more of a, a storytelling thing where you kind of, you start off with something that you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect from Sarah, given her sort of general empathetic view of people. So she sets that up and it and it does, like it did with Kevin, kind of make you take a little bit of notice and then after that set up she she starts to sort of go into the complications around it and, and what makes it not such a a clear-cut thing.
0: Well, speaking of it not being a clear-cut thing, you know, we heard a lot about Beau's background in part one, and, you know, she started at the beginning, you know, before the surrogate family, before the Coast Guard, she started with his voice talking about his own upbringing, his being isolated, his, you know, living in the middle of nowhere, sort of being on his own. Toby, what did you think of his description of his own childhood?
2: Well, you know, it sounded lonely quite honestly. And unless I missed it, I think that was the first time we'd heard that he felt sort of alienated from his parents, which is certainly not sort of the impression you would have gotten from following the story while he was still captured, you know, where his father was going to these great, though, eccentric lengths to do what he could to bring him back. So I I thought that was interesting. And I think it's also you know without getting into the psychological diagnosis stuff which I guess we'll talk about later again when you talk about as I've talked about before about somebody kind of seeing themselves as the protagonist in a story I think when you're that isolated it's just you you don't have as many social relations with your peers and things like that you probably do create stories for yourself and he, you know he talks uh, I don't think in this episode but in other places he Going on adventures in the woods where he's gone for days, With and things cat. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like a childhood he enjoyed. And I think it also, the circumstances would lead for somebody to have some very extreme sense of self. Which I think he exhibits later,
0: right? And didn't one of the New York Times—I think it was the New York Times article that came out recently—said um, that since he's been back, he hasn't really had a relationship with his parents, which I found really surprising, given what we saw during his captivity. Did any of you guys read that as well?
2: Well, I think
1: you told me that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't think that counts, <laughs> <laughs> Kevin. Well, when- I know that he didn't—he didn't go and see his parents right away after he was yeah. released, right. right?
0: Right, Kevin. What did you think of Bo's description of his childhood? What do you think it sounded like I- with the with the you know the, the running around in the woods, the the fighting skills, his like desire to surround himself with exotic weaponry.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I agree with Toby that it did sound lonely. You, you have to wonder whether it's a, a nature or nurture. You know, is he a product of his environment or is, you know, was he, you know, was that how he came out of the womb, I guess? Or is
0: he perceiving his environment a certain way? Well, yeah.
1: You know, and again, this is going to get into the psychological diagnosis that his defense team uncovered. Like, if I knew him in high school, like on the surface the way we interact with people, I'd say he's like Napoleon Dynamite.
0: In Idaho, too.
1: In, in Idaho, too, <laughs> right. But, you know, the whole thing with, you know, nunchuck skills and bow hunting skills mm-hmm. and, you know, the the story about how when he was hanging with the, that surrogate family and they had to have, uh, what, like a mace mm-hmm. and a sword and a shotgun and every, you know, you know, that kind of um, thinking, it's very eccentric. So does being homeschooled, living off the grid Away from people does that amplify what your natural tendencies for those kinds of things are or is it just you know a recipe of you take somebody who already is predisposed to a certain kind of magical thinking paranoia whatever and then put them in a situation like that and it just uh, incubates Now
0: there is I think a big difference between small town, childhood and isolated yeah. childhood in terms of, I think, the kind of person you end up being. In. I consume a lot of pop culture, but not a lot of this kind of pop culture. So I'm going to throw a reference out there that I'm not really that well-versed, and I apologize if I get it wrong. But this season on American Idol, I believe, there's a contestant, or was a contestant, I haven't kept up with it, who grew up off the grid, like in a cabin in the middle of nowhere.
1: I saw that package.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and she, like, (laughs) walked on the stage with, like, her cello, like, strapped to her chest Mm -hmm. and, like, did this yodeling thing, which was, like, incredible. And she's obviously, like, really, really talented and has all this skill that is completely self-taught because she does something that I've never seen anyone do before. It's like completely unique. And she's very self-assured and she has this like Wait, she's only like 15 years old or something like that.
1: Right, but she was like X amount of miles away from <laughs> yeah. There's the like, no electricity, and, and, you know. Right. Really, cranked up the generators once a week to watch america Exactly. Idol.
0: Like we live in a small town, Laura. You grew up in a small town, right? Well, I was
3: going to say actually, I really grew up in the middle of nowhere. So this really res. I lived a mile from my closest neighbor growing up, and um, so listening to a lot of what Bo was talking about sort of resonated with me. Well, it explains uh, you know, a
1: lot about you. Keep going.
3: It, it does, because when I finally get around people, I just lost my mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I never stop talking. But there's different levels of, I mean, he sounds like being homeschooled and isolated. I just can't imagine. It sort of made me wonder, you know, what sort of impact did this have on his development as a child? Because he wasn't going through what you would expect milestones kids are traditionally exposed to. Living out in the woods like that, you know, I did also follow the cats around and the horses and things like that. So I could really relate to this part.
1: But Laura, isn't it different being a seven-year-old in that situation and being a 17-year-old?
3: Yeah, well, I lived like, th- I mean, I was out in the middle of nowhere until I went to college, basically.
0: But Laura, here's here's my question for you. You're, I mean, I don't know anything about your family, so I apologize if this is too personal a question, but... Both seem to almost like not have a functional, traditional family unit where they did regular family things. Because then when he met this surrogate family, the Harrisons, like he was fascinated with them. Like it's like he was like studying them. It sounds almost like his parents weren't playing parental roles. Did, did you yeah. did you glean that from listening to this?
3: Yeah, I did. It it sort of reminded me of I don't remember where it was. Maybe was it Russia? Those lost children that were basically like living out in the wild on their own. The feral Uh, children. Yeah, it's just so it's like when he finally got around people, he was like he didn't know what to make of it. So it, it was fascinating. But it really, really made me come away from this wondering what was the long term impact of this? And had he not been raised like this? What would he have turned
2: out like? One other point that just kind of occurs to me while we're talking is that at that level of isolation that he's at, I think it's hard to contextualize your own sort of abilities and and where you stand in relation to other people so that if you're really not hanging around with other people, you don't know that you're not the smartest or the best, you know, kung fu fighter. If you don't have someone else to kung fu fight with... Exactly You'll you never know to, that you're suck to right? chop you down um, <laughs> but but again i mean i think i think you can come out of that if you've got a certain mindset thinking i am this super warrior
0: let's talk a bit about this surrogate family that Bo found we heard a whole lot from kim harrison in an earlier episode but in this episode we heard from her daughter kayla as well who sarah said is the one person everyone told her truly understands Bo. now laura when i heard kayla talking about Bo, i found her description of him I want to say, at the same time, both strange, but also really moving. Um, I'm wondering what you thought about what Kayla had to say when she was describing what it was like to grow up with Beau.
3: Yeah, I think she seemed to have a lot of empathy for him. Like, she, I, I don't want to say she felt sorry for him, but I think she sort of grasped that he wasn't the same as everybody else and it wasn't necessarily his fault. She seemed to try to be tolerant of some of his eccentricities. But at the same time, I found it interesting how she did sort of get irritated with him at some times and and just had a hard time with some of his behaviors. But it sounded like she was one of the few people... Who really got, you know, that he was behaving like this and this was just how he was and sort of accepted him at that, even if it was a challenge at times. And these people sounded like, please take this in the
0: spirit in which is meant all of you. They sounded like real, like down to earth hippies to me. Like they were just yeah. so warm and so art, that everybody was like super articulate. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like super articulate, right? And the way that they were able to describe things and really paint a picture and also sort of engender empathy in me. Toby, when you heard about Bo kind of adopting this family, hanging out with them from the time he was like 13 and up, you know, just basically like living in their house, working in their store, and then you heard them talk about him, I mean, they certainly described him as very, very bright. Nobody said he was like special, you know, in that, in that way, in that, you know, insulting way or anything like that. Everybody sort of talked about him as being incredibly bright and adding something to their lives. What was your sense of what Bo got from it? What did they get from it? What did you think of this whole scene?
2: Yeah, it's it's strange, you know, and I, I tried to think a little bit about if there was a presence like that in my family. I was kind of struck by the description of him, what they ran a cafe, a coffee shop. A and tea
0: shop, yes, which is way, way more hippie than a coffee shop, I way think. Way more hippie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not getting the hippie degree, right. Um, and he would like kind of, he, he kind of saw himself as being security, like just in case stuff went down at the tea shop. Bouncer at the tea shop. Exactly In Idaho. Oh, yeah, he's going to be a mercenary. I mean, they're a very open family because I think I would have a concern about how that strange vibe, I guess, would kind of go with my kids. He does seem to be sort of operating on a slightly different wavelength than everybody else. And I think sort of That kind of ethos that that family had is probably more accepting of it than most other families would have been.
0: Well, I have to say that's what I kept thinking about because clearly they're very accepting people. They're, you know, I've classified them as hippies already, so I may as well just say it one more time. And they are open to the idea of sort of taking in this boy and having him fold in. It also, to me, makes me wonder about what they knew about his family life and what he told them about how he grew up. Because, you know, I have a 14-year-old son who's almost 15, and, you know, his friends are over a lot. And some of them, I feel like sometimes, oh, I would adopt that kid. He's over here all the time. We feed him all the time. But then occasionally I'm like, you know what? These kids need to go. They need to go back to their own (laughs) houses. And it's because I know that they're going back to a house that's just as comfortable. I may feel differently, though, if I knew they weren't going back home somewhere that was like a good home. Kevin, did you you think about this at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference between describing playmates and buddies, then someone who seems to really more or less adopt you as the, the surrogate family. If I saw that, I would say that is a child, a teenager, who has some kind of disconnected home. And it could be very serious and, and violent on one end, or it could just be mom and dad don't get me. And like, you know, what she said, like he, he did what teens have done for centuries, which is to get out of the house as soon as you could. Yeah, I, I was, you know, thinking more and more about this. And, you know, throughout television history, there's always been, like, that one character who comes and hangs out at the house. Eddie <laughs> Haskell. Yeah, uh, Urkel. <laughs> Urkel. Kimmy Gibbler. Kimmy, Kimmy Gibbler, yeah. You, uh, you know. Um, uh,
0: cockroach on The Cosby Show.
1: Yeah. Kramer.
0: Yeah, Kramer. Kramer,
1: <laughs> who, as opposed to just coming in and being there, they're there because in somewhere that they don't belong in the other place that they're supposed to be. Right. And they do sort of adopt this family. Now, it, you know, at, after a couple of seasons, it's done for comic effect. You know, Jenny Piccolo on Happy Days or whatever. You know, in real life, you know, you do see that and you say,
0: I got mm. one boners yeah. to bone on the growing pains. <laughs> 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 but you're right, this is a trope. This is actually something that I never even thought about before that there is that adopted, strange guy. And, that, and that in, in pop culture, that person is always a little off and weird, right?
1: Yeah, Potsy yeah. or Fonzie.
0: My God, this is amazing. We're like discovering well, a phenomenon yeah, but it's, here.
1: Right. So it, it is a writer's crutch, mm-hmm. maybe, but there's a kernel of truth in it in real life. There's the guy who comes over and you may see it as we're just hanging out, but he's there or she's there because they don't want to go home. As I'm
3: listening to you guys, you know, and thinking about this, there there is something here to be said about growing up in a rural area like this. And like I said, I grew up in a very rural area. And I think you do know more about the other families around, because it's a small town, it's a small area, and, you know, everybody knows everybody. Like where I grew up, for example, there was a teacher at the high school who always knew the kids that were from bad families, or that, not bad families, but, you know, were struggling. And so this this teacher would go out of his way to sort of adopt these kids. And there was, like, you know, somebody that he had kind of adopted in high school that would come over and shower at their house, because they didn't have a shower. And so... I think there is a tendency in more rural, isolated areas like this for things like this to happen. Now, we heard, this is the first reference we've heard to
0: it in Serial, um, that Bo went to the Coast Guard. It turns out that was Kim Harrison's suggestion when Bo started talking about joining the military. She was like, how about the Coast Guard? <laughs> Where
1: well, you don't go far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you could hey, rescue it. She, she very, I think, astutely recognized that the mission of the Coast Guard was very much in line with Bo's own code or his self-professed code. Kevin, what did you think of Kim's telling of Bo's account of what happened in the Coast Guard and his being hospitalized and leaving the Coast Guard. What did you think of the way that that was presented in the podcast?
1: This reminds me a bit of the, the Fisher King myth, which was, you know, essentially you have the success as a very young man and you are always chasing it. And then there's early failure and then you're always chasing it afterwards. You know, it's that grail quest, which is different than the Arthurian one. So that kind of reminds me like he he continues to seek and seek and seek a way to prove himself. You know, in real life, I, I thought that it was it was laid out very well. And, you know, with the the culmination of the anecdote being that he just shows up in his uniform because he knows and she knows, they both know that she is going to, you know, object to his joining the army.
0: And he both wants her to object to it. I mean, it's like he wants her to know she, he's going, obviously, because he shows up in his uniform. I don't know. I found that whole thing very interesting where it's like he hid it from her and hid it from her. And yet he shows up in his uniform it's really parental that whole dynamic there of like I'll show you mom kind of thing at the same time also wanting her approval all I kept thinking through this whole passage is that at some point along the line, he read some Hemingway, because he is expatriating, like he's trying to leave, mm-hmm. you know, after some big trauma. Well,
1: we know he read Atlas Shrugged, but... Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> Ayn Rand. <laughs> food for the soul, that Ayn Rand is. But, but you know, it, it just sort of felt like he was, that whole, like, pursuit of manhood. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to fulfill my code? Well, it means I have to do this. It means I have to, what do you say, plant a tree, fight a bull, you know? And we know that right Hemingway, above, yeah. like yeah, expatriated. Like, you know, he write, writes about these sort of lost characters who are like looking to prove themselves but are really just sort of floundering and doing all these very manly things at the same time. That's what, that's what it reminds yeah, me of. Jason
1: Bourne is this uh, generation's interest having one.
0: <laughs> well, now we're going to move on to part two of this week's set of episodes. But before that, there's something I need to discuss with all of you and with our listeners. And Kevin, do you agree we need a bit of a drum roll here for it?
1: Yeah. No, 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 no.
0: Guess what, guys? This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Yes! (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: Crime writers on listeners can get a free 30-day trial right now by going to Audible.com slash crime. Bit of transparency. If you choose at some point to go to Audible.com, use that slash crime because then it will let Audible know that you heard about it right now. Here and who knows, maybe they'll sponsor
1: a I think you gonna let them know how wicked smart you are.
0: <laughs> well, Audible is the perfect thing for people who love books but never have time to read them. With Audible.com, you can get audiobooks and listen to those books in your car or while you're on your walk or at the gym. If you're like Kevin, you can be one of those people who watches Game of Thrones and says, I read the books. But didn't actually read the books. He
1: actually listened to the books. I consider it the same. I was exposed to the story. (laughs) You know, it's 37 hours of uh, listening to um, uh, descriptions of sigils and boiled leather.
0: (laughs) Well, Audible.com provides over 180,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. There's an app. It works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can download to listen to your Kindle Fire. Unlike a streaming service with Audible, you own the books. So question for you, Toby and Laura. If our listeners go to audible.com slash crime to get their free 30-day trial membership, any books you would recommend that they try out?
2: Okay, I've listened to a lot of audiobooks, and a book that I really loved listening to is called New Jack, which is all one word, by Ted Conover. And the story behind it is essentially uh, Ted Conover is is a journalist. He wanted to go and report inside Sing Sing, which is a prison in New York State. And their policy is that you can't report from inside Sing Sing. So he decides to become a prison guard. So this book is about him training to be a prison guard and then spending a year as a prison guard in a maximum security prison. And it's very, very intense. And it was one of those things where I would drive to work and then sit in the parking lot for a few minutes to like let them complete that section of the book because it really captured me. I'd really looked forward to my commute. Driveway moment. Driveway moment with Audible.com. Exactly.
0: Okay, what about you, Laura? Is there an audiobook that you'd recommend our listeners try if they get that free membership using Audible.com
3: slash crime? You know, I like historical fiction that also has some mystery in it. And there's a book I really liked by a writer from Salem, Massachusetts called The Lace Reader. And it's got a completely unreliable narrator named Towner Whitney. And she admits in the first opening sentences that she's crazy and that we shouldn't believe anything that she says. She's returning to Salem after her aunt dies and it's uh, it's a real interesting story about a family that reads Lace to tell the future but it also has a mystery about how Towner's sister, her twin sister died and All I can say is the ending has the best twist that I've read in quite some time. I
0: actually have a similar book to recommend. I think it might be a similar book. The Winter People by Jennifer McMahon. Super creepy, fun novel. A lot of history written into it. It's a haunting, haunting book. It takes place in a house in the woods of Vermont. There's sort of a supernatural quality about it, but it's beautifully written. The other book I'm going to recommend is a book by a friend who, full disclosure, is a friend, but it is a great new nonfiction book called Dead Presidents about the weird lives that presidents live after they die in this country. It's by Brady Carlson. It's called Dead Presidents. Kevin, do you have a book you want to recommend to our listeners from audible.com that they can get with their free trial by going to audible.com slash crime?
1: I'm really interested in the Vaults That's a by good Toby book. Ball. Now, Toby, we were talking about how like when we get our first books, like they come in the mail, we lavish them and hold you, them
0: like a baby, hold
1: them like a baby. And then like reading your books. When you had your audio book, did you listen to the audio book? And did the narrator do like voices for Frank and for everybody?
2: Yeah, he does voices. I have to admit, I haven't listened to the entire thing. I've listened to to some of it. What they did do is they sent me. What, like eight different readers? There uh-huh. were eight different sort of audition tapes, and I got to pick who I wanted That's to have. That's cool. Wow. Yeah, so that was kind of fun. I think it happens when you
0: make the big time.
2: <laughs> yeah, huge time. I
0: think. Anyway, The Vault is a great book. I recommend that as well. But Audible.com does have a great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, you can exchange it if you aren't happy for another title anytime. And for our listeners, just one more time Audible.com is offering a free 30 day trial membership. Go to Audible.com slash everyone slash what? Oh. Crime.
2: Crime. Start your free trial
0: today. Show your support for this show by getting your free trial by using audible.com slash crime. All right, guys, can you believe that just happened?
1: Yeah, let's go buy a Cadillac now.
0: I cannot believe it just happened. I feel so sweaty now. I'm just like so excited. (laughs) I got to gather my thoughts. Okay. Part two, serial hindsight. Part two dropped on Friday does, morning. Does
1: Audible know that there's not an audiobook version yet of Dark Heart? <laughs> I don't think they do. Call Penguin Random House. Ask for Amanda. <laughs> okay.
0: Oh, I really do. I have this like I have this feeling like we just like um, I don't know crossed a bridge of some kind. We
1: crushed over the threshold. It's uh, like we've gone past the coochie tent and we're <laughs> in the desert. There's so many of our, our listeners who are got to be relieved that we got that.
0: Yeah, I think. We've been cheering us on. Our listeners are really, really wonderful. We have one listener, actually, who's been emailing companies, haranguing (sighs) them. Her name is Wendy. She's wonderful. Haranguing them to become our sponsors and then forwarding me their responses.
1: (laughs) Oh, great. So we owe Wendy 10% like our agent? (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Wendy, thanks for nothing.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. Wendy's great. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Let's move on beyond ourselves and our newfound- uh, Audible
1: got its money's worth on that. Yeah. That, that, that.
0: They're either going to love it or they hate it, just like everybody else. Yeah. Okay, so hindsight, part two. Now, part two begins with the question of whether the Army should have been more thorough in checking Bo's suitability for enlistment. We heard varying opinions on this from Sarah and in her interviews. Now, Laura, I know you've got strong opinions about this. What did you think of this part of the episode where we heard, you know, from the one professional psychiatrist who said, oh, this is just very common. You know, um, this is the kind of people that we let into the Army. And the other one who said, like, no way should we have let him in. Where did you land? And what did you think of this part of the episode?
3: I felt sort of validated here because I've been saying this for, uh, you know, a little while now. Like, I don't think they should have let him in. He got in on this waiver. You know, my husband was actually home the morning that I was listening to this and he's a fire chief. And I paused the episode and I was like, listen, if you had somebody come to the fire department for an interview that had been psych discharged from another job like this, would you hire him? And he's like, Absolutely not. So what I took from this was I found it a little bit ridiculous that the first doctor was saying this isn't uncommon. What it signaled to me is once again there's some sort of systemic breakdown in the way that these different branches of the government operate and communicate because how many other people did they let in? that had some sort of an issue that really is gonna come up and bite them in the end like this did. Toby, how did this part of the episode strike you, this weighing of
0: Bo's suitability and whether or not he should have been let in and him receiving that waiver?
2: Well, I think they were both right in that under ideal circumstances, you wouldn't have let him in, but that in fact they probably let in a lot of people like that because they they had a shortage and so they had to loosen you know, the qualifications by which they let people in and they probably took a look at Bo and we're like, OK, there's no criminal record. you know. He's in good shape. He probably did well in the whatever brief interview he got. So it doesn't surprise me that they let him in. And it also doesn't surprise me that it didn't work out so well. There's all kinds of journalism out there about sort of the consequences uh, at that time. I don't know if it's still going on now of, again, relaxing their standards for certain things. And I think it was Jeff Charlotte maybe Uh, wrote an article about how there were more people from white supremacist gangs that were getting into the army, like certain kinds of tattoos that had been keeping people out before were now sort of ignored and and letting them in. Yeah. So I, I think there was, it wasn't just on the mental health aspect of things, but in a lot of types of people who the, who the army was, I think, sort of sensibly, Reluctant to take in the past, they then started taking on just because they needed people.
1: Now, was it at the end of part one where they describe his his breakdown in the Coast Guard? I How think they, so. Yeah, I think I, so.
0: It's all a blur to me now with the two
1: episodes. <laughs> with the two kind of and blending the audible, together.
0: And the Audible thing just like completely threw me off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, first of all, I'd say like I thought that that was very compelling to say like, you know, it just one day he's on the, the ground like bleeding uncontrollably from the nose. And you know those kinds of details of his separation. If he was young man, I guess they said he's nineteen, and there is a big difference between being nineteen and twenty-four. But Laura's right that there are, are systemic problems, and Sarah laid them out. I'm thinking that both of the, at least one of the doctors, I think both of them, sort of admitted that this is the way it works. Right. So the answer is they didn't do anything wrong. But the system is set up in a way that doesn't capture that. So right. it isn't like they, they didn't veer from standard, they didn't break standard the procedure. standard procedures no. They didn't veer from standard procedure, but standard procedure is wrong. And the general made a footnote about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should be looking at, at you know asking a, a deeper question, because also what we've heard some, from some of the professionals is that you can't just like have a recruiter take a look at this guy and say, "Oh, he's mentally fit." for this duty now. And even if they sent him to an army psychologist after one visit unless he's exhibiting some extreme signs, you're still not going to be able to do that. It's not like finding a swastika tattoo on his chest. It's much more complicated. I mean, come on, we he was he was in the field in an intimate way with so many guys that they picked up that this was weird and that was weird, but none of them said this is not a guy who's not fit to serve. So that's that's a very difficult thing. So I think the point is made, well, that perhaps... This isn't the one where, you know, somebody said, oh, I'm really getting pressured and I need to do this. I think it was just sort of like, "Okay, you know, there's I think more of a failure that we hear later on when some of the uh, I think, you know, the first sergeant, you know, that conversation about somebody should just go talk to Bo. Right. Yeah.
0: That was fascinating. Was it not? I mean, that one piece of information that we got that this one soldier said to the higher up, he's not adjusting well, someone needs to talk to him. And the response was what? I don't want to... It was like a lot of F bombs <laughs> I don't remember exactly well, what it was. Well, originally said, do fuck don't off, want, shut uh, the fuck up. Shut the, yeah. F- yeah. yeah. I don't
1: want to fucking hear about that. Right. The essence was, I, I again, I don't want this going up the chain of command that I've got a, a rotten apple. Can we or, put that
0: aside for one second? Because it actually apple, like does tie into something I want to talk about after we talk about this big revelation that we finally got in this episode. And I just want to just stop for one second. Let's just, you know, this is, I think, what we all want to talk about, right, is this big diagnosis revelation that could be an answer to what might have been going on in Bo Bergdahl's head all along. We've spent lots of time on this show and on social media talking about whether or not Bo has some type of developmental delay, or if he's on the autism spectrum, or if he has a mental illness. The night between part one and two, we got lots of emails with more theories. All of them, by the way, every single one of them, probably seven or eight emails from professionals in the psychiatric Mm -hmm. field. And they were all really interesting, and my plan was to just read a sentence from each and just throw them out there and have us talk about them in this episode. And then that all went out the window because on Thursday night, before Friday's episode came out, we got this email from a listener who is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology and she wrote this, I noticed something in the last minute of episode seven and as soon as I thought it, the first thing I wanted to do was tell you, which by the way, awesome, right? It's awesome. (laughs) Okay, yeah. yeah.
2: Um,
0: I believe the psychological symptoms listed in the last minute of the episode is someone describing schizotypal personality disorder. Wow, right? Yeah. It would be quite something if the military did not adequately screen out someone with this particular presentation. There is a specific diagnostic criteria for SPD that it cannot be diagnosed comorbidly with any pervasive developmental disorder, including autism. In other words, if an individual in the autism spectrum, they would not be diagnosed with SPD even if they meet the criteria. The DSM, that of course is the book of all the psychiatric and psychological. Diagnosis, a- diagnosis, diagnosis manual, exactly manual uh, Notes the difficulty in the differential diagnosis between pervasive developmental disorders and SPD, et cetera, et cetera. So the DSM also notes that individuals with SPD may respond to stress by experiencing transient psychotic episodes. So that was the big revelation that Bo has this diagnosis, a personality disorder diagnosis, that that basically tells the story that when he's under this stress, he has essentially a psychotic episode that puts him in a state of paranoia that surfaces all those feelings he has about who he is and his code and makes him react to those feelings. Toby, when you heard this diagnosis and you just got to lay it out there what it means, what did you think?
2: I think it's pretty consistent with the way he's been presented and kind of the way I've thought about him, with the exception of the idea that being under stress could lead to, you know, a psychotic episode. And that may have been what was the final impetus behind him leaving.
0: We just talked for a second, too, about our listener, like, calling this.
2: I read that email the night before, and she didn't put spoiler alert on it. (laughs) (laughs) And I I sent you guys an email. Like, I listened, as soon as I heard that, I was like, hold on, was was that what she had said in the email? Yes. So I went back to the email, and I was like, oh, my God. So I, like, immediately sent all you guys an email and be like, man, she just... She nailed it exactly.
0: Whomever her dissertation supervisor is should immediately just say, you're in,
3: you're
1: (laughs) in. Way to diagnose somebody from across the world. Um, You know, when when I got that email, she she did include a link to the DSM. And I looked it up and I looked at, you know, it wasn't terribly difficult to read. There there was sort of like a list of bullet points of symptoms. And I'm going, wow, you know, they like at first didn't like all fit and they don't don't always do. But I got to the one about, you know, paranoia. And I'm like, "I, I don't really think about any paranoia, but then I'm reminded in the episode. Yeah, this whole idea that he's, they're going to be sent out on a suicide mission, I'm like in a
0: tea that, shop. He had an yeah, idea exactly. he was going to be attacked.
1: Yeah. And then the idea about, I mean, there's sort of like, you know, the eccentricities and the magical thinking, and I apologize. okay, yeah, there's that, there's that, there's that. And, you know, the psychotic can be a lot of different things. To to have a, a, a transient psychotic episode doesn't necessarily mean that you do harm to other people. It can manifest itself in a lot of ways. I'm thinking how he was out of the Coast Guard. He has this episode where he's on the floor in the bathroom, you know, bleeding from these orifices. You know, that might be considered something like that.
0: How about getting hit by a car on a bike trip that he'd been planning for and like getting actually getting out there and being in that stressful situation? We don't really know the story about the bike accident and what happened. We just know that his bike was wrecked, but he was fine and he came back. But it makes me think of every situation that he started on an adventure that then was halted for some reason that he couldn't. Fulfill it. Laura, what do you think? I mean, first of all, I think we all agree that this listener is a genius and her email was great. And then we heard this in the episode. When you heard the symptoms laid out by Sarah, when you looked at this listener's email
3: Does this feel like it jives to you with what we've learned about Bo so far? It does. One of the things I used to do when I was a defense investigator, I sat in on a lot of competency evaluations. So I had a lot of exposure to different mental health issues and and things like this, but I had never heard of this. Um, So, you know, as I was listening to part one, I was thinking to myself, geez, it really sounds like he's got a lot of anxiety because he's real rigid. He's kind of got his own coping mechanism. He can't bend. And then when I heard this, I, I, you know, I may have, you know, swore or exclaimed something in my house as I was sitting here, but it really fit. And I think that the magical thinking part of it really, I think, is kind of the hallmark of everything that he has done. Because he's, I wouldn't say delusional, but he's just got these sort of grandiose ideas of what he's able to do when he gets caught up in this magical thinking. And I think it really puts it all into perspective. It also made me think about, how, again, back to his childhood, somebody with these issues going on who's basically, it sounds like, raising himself. How did that contribute to, you know, possibly making this manifest in a more severe way than maybe it would have if he'd had some sort of early intervention and treatment?
0: Now, Kevin, in earlier episodes of this show, you sort of dismissed Bo's Jason Bourne comment as being, you know, metaphorical, not literal. Then we heard Sarah describe learning about this diagnosis and finding it liberating because she could let go of all of the statements that he'd made that she felt didn't add up. Did you feel that way when you like sort of thought about this diagnosis and those Jason Bourne comments and the other things that you have sort of not been able to figure out? Do you feel like you can now let got, some of that yeah, go? Yeah,
1: you've got two questions in there, and I'll have to say I was wrong on one, and I agree on the other. The I, yeah the the way when we heard him talk to Mark about you know I got to come back with something, and he mentioned Jason Bourne. Toby definitely thought, and I'll give to, to, uh, Toby, you're right that he was making wow. the statement that. Wife, come on! I've given you cred before, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm just, joking. Uh, yeah, yeah. At the time, I was I was the one saying, no, he's just you know speaking metaphorically. He's just use, being very conversational and, and using an example. But we heard him in this part two telling Mark that he wanted to be a, a soldier like in World War II, in the Civil War, a, a samurai warrior. I'm thinking, wait, no, this actually does fit with he did have this perception or fantasy or delusion about being like a Jason Bourne or wanting to be uh, a Jason Bourne that something was achievable to him. So, yeah, I was wrong. I took that as him just, you know, being flip. But that was actually a clue into what his actual psychosis was. So, good for you, Toby, <laughs> Mr. Audible book. <laughs> <laughs> now, I... I don't have. But the second part of your question, when, when Sarah said, I could let it go. Right. I went along with that, and uh, I can I, I kind of agree with that. We're really hung up on what is going on in his head. Whether well, he's up telling the truth or lying, yeah he's what? telling the truth, and we said this in a lot of different ways. That it's in some ways it is obstructing the narrative. We've got a lot of listeners who are just fixed that he's lying and he's a traitor, and and which is okay to believe, but they are are not paying attention to the rest of the story. You know, there's a little bit of a, you need to have the willing suspension of disbelief. You have to have the willing suspension of so what. Right. So let's move forward with the rest of the story. And so for all those little things, she's basically saying, if there were a Nisha call in this uh, season, I'm not going to worry about it anymore because it's not supposed to make sense. There's a bigger picture and that can fill in some of the holes. Could he still be like lying through his teeth about everything that happened after he disappeared Possibly not according to the
0: GSM, like that's that's
1: just not the way that there's a lot now. There's so much evidence that that corroborates what he says. The little things that don't can be explained by his perception of the world not matching reality.
0: Okay, so I just want to get to what I think is the heart of this episode, and I know the part that got me really worked up. Um, and really for the first time in my history of listening to Sarah Koenig's stories, I'll just disclose this in advance. Like, I was actually kind of like. Not on Sarah's side. You were like, mad, really mad. Um, this was her conversation with Mark Bowe. They guys, I
1: told her put a cork in this and talk about it tomorrow on the podcast. <laughs> I don't want to hear any more about this. In the if, car. We, if
0: we ever do start that relationship podcast, are all of our fights are going to be like save it for the podcast? Uh, anyway, so in her in Sarah's conversation with Mark Bowl, they did have a bit of a conflict. Uh, Mark said he worried that this diagnosis would make people dismiss all of what Bo claimed about the military, and then Sarah made a comment. She said, "You know, well, Sarah, well, I, you know, I think Bo was right." By accident. And Mark really seemed to have a problem with that. I really had a problem with it too. Of course, he's talking about the fact that, you know, the military, with all the data points that we can talk about, it is a messed up experience, and the le- and things are messed up, and they had that like back and forth. Now I'm curious to know what you guys thought of that. No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. This time you answer. Okay. Because yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. No, no, it,
1: it's fair enough. You go ahead, ask me a question. After I had the yeah. silver fox on, I'm, I'm ready to okay. ask me a question. You said you were mad about he was right by accident. Yes. Are you mad at the way she phrased that, or what she means by that?
0: I have justice issues around it because. Sometimes you work with someone who's like a super jerk at your office, right? hmm It doesn't mean that they're wrong about, about, the, other super jerk. about the accounting error. hmm You know what I mean, and there is a difference between there is a line, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I've done enough research into this that I do know there's a difference. You're practically
1: a psychiatrist. I know
0: there's a difference. Yes, I'm the grinder of psychiatrists. There's a difference between a personality disorder and a treatable mental illness like mood disorder, a mood disorder, a chemical depression, right, or bipolar disorder. And you know, I'm not speaking completely out of turn. I have some experience in my own life with some of this. There is a difference, and the personality disorder is such that this is your wiring, and you'll very often see in write-ups about narcissistic personality disorder and psychopathy that it is not treatable, that this is just the wiring of this is the person, the way the person thinks, the way their personality is constructed. That does does not mean, just because Beau has an inflated code of his own that he's built over the experience of his life, it does not mean that, you know, using data points, that sending a bunch of young men in to retrieve a broken vehicle is not a messed up calculation by moral standards. It may be standard practice in the military, and it may be something that everybody else accepts as tactical and as as the right thing to do for the greater good. It does not mean that it is not, and I'm speaking now as a mother, as somebody who's like a citizen of the United States and as a human being, it does not mean that it is also not completely messed up. So I don't like this idea that he's wrong by accident. But
1: but Mark kind of says this. He says the same thing like he's right. He's like if you say this, you're kind of trying to you're discrediting everything he has about his whistleblowing slash complaints. And yeah, and Mark said it is fucked up that they're gonna have to stay up there for five days to defend a piece of equipment. But it's not for a private first class to make the decision that are the well, you know, that wasn't a worthy military objective. We're
0: not talking about his decision. We're but talking about that, what that, he is said. He not,
1: then is he not wrong is he not right By accident? No.
0: He's right because he's right, period. He may have been wrong in the way, you know, wrong, objectively speaking, because his personality disorder had him be like act out on in a certain way. It does not mean he wasn't thinking anything differently than all the other young men were thinking. He's not wired to handle it. It's like, has anybody ever gotten fired from any of your workplaces? And then every problem in the entire organization gets blamed on that fired person for the next six months or whatever, even though most of it is like still in the organization. That person may have not worked out for a multitude of reasons. reasons, but the problems are still there. It is not an accident, and that person may have also been observing them even as they were doing their bad acts. So that's what—that's where I stand on it. I think that's probably the most like I've ever revealed about my opinion on the history of this podcast. And you guys can disagree with me. I'm cool with that. We won't have the Mark Bull, Sarah Koenig friendly argument about it, but um, I don't I, know. I think
1: that's good that they can do that and bounce that off of each other. Respectfully. I don't know yeah. if I agree with you or not.
0: Okay. What do you guys think? Toby, what do you think?
2: Uh, yeah, I guess I didn't take as much offense to it as you did. I mean, I think there, there are plenty of times when people come to the right conclusion, but the logic that leads up to that conclusion isn't the right logic, I guess, or the the steps that they take to get to that conclusion don't necessarily follow. And that's what I kind of thought she was talking about. I mean, the, the, the part that got to me about that little part of it was sort of this idea that just because... He's you know allegedly mentally ill that doesn't mean he's wrong like you don't you don't look at his observations through the prism of what, what's wrong with his mind just look at his observations for what they are for what they were telling about the situation there which I thought was an interesting point because I, I do think that once you sort of pathologize him it's like oh well he had these problems and then he and that's why he took these steps etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know the counter argument is no things were really screwed up which i think is the, the argument you're making things were really screwed up and he saw that clearly where the pathology comes in is he didn't react to it in a way That was appropriate, given where he was, who he was working for, what his standing was.
0: Right. As Mark pointed out, he didn't give a tip to The Guardian reporter that was embedded with them about everything that was going on. You know, he chose this other action. And Laura, you know, I I want you to comment on the same thing. But I also want to add a second question for you. Do you think that Sarah and Mark's disagreement on this is a product of the fact that Mark has been the one to have the first person contact with Bo and Sarah has not had the first person contact with Bo?
3: Oh, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, because I think that he, I think he certainly recognizes that Bo has, you know, something like we said before, this is off and now we know what it is. But at the same time, I think that some of the, reports a lot of them actually because we've talked about this a lot of the things that Bo reported other people that Sarah interviewed backed up so I think you know, trying to negate everything that Bo has reported just because he's got a mental health diagnosis doesn't actually, you know, that doesn't work because these things still happen. Um, You know, as I was sitting here, I was, I was thinking about, you know, this is, you know, my grandmother's in a nursing home and I'm always afraid of people being taken advantage in nursing homes. And I mean, think about it when somebody reports like one of these elderly residents reports something getting stolen. Uh, Oh, they're just forgetful. It really wasn't stolen. But in a lot of cases, those things do happen. So it's kind of the same scenario in a different way. It's just this gives people almost an excuse not to believe Bo if they choose to take that side. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about this, that there's a lot of systemic problems that have been brought to light in this right back to the, you know, two poor girls out in Tampa that are, you know, just sort of finding their way, trying to get the hostages brought home. So, I think that Mark certainly, you know, having that relationship with Bo probably makes him feel a little bit more invested in what Bo's saying.
0: Right. And I I do want to loop back now to this fellow soldier of Bo's, you know, the superior soldier who reported that Bo was having a problem to this other commander you know they said this higher up commander i'm sorry th- again
1: I remember if it was the first sergeant that was making or they were reporting to the first sergeant and the first sergeant i guess was, i should have yeah. written
0: that down huh anyway um, <laughs> and this whole sense that you know there was something wrong that he wasn't adjusting and that it was reported and that the answer was i don't want to fucking talk about it Was Bo right about that by accident? Because that's exactly what he reported. I don't think he knew that. But he reported that nobody cared about the guys at the bottom, that nobody cared about their well being, that nobody wanted to talk about it, that it was all. That's what he reported. Was he wrong about that by accident, Kevin?
1: Whoa. God, you want to yell at me about the laundry too while we're here? (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm just going to go back to what Laura said. Um, you know, it's funny. Everybody who has had contact with Bo walks away on his side since he's been back. Since
0: he's been back, yes. Right?
1: All the investigators, the psychiatrists, the psychiatrists, Mark. The the uh, general who
0: wrote the recommendation well, that yeah. he knocked,
1: yeah. Which, you know, which is why he received originally a recommendation of no court-martial. And the general that proceeded, you know, I mean, who said overruled and said, no, we're going to go to court-martial is somebody we we believe hasn't had a lot of personal contact with. Beau. There's something about Bo and about his story which— Uh, wins people over when he tells it. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know. I don't know what that is.
0: Well, you know what? He also was able to get a waiver to get into the Army after telling his story about what happened in the Coast Guard. So there is some... There's something there about whatever it is personality. He actually with his has meta-
1: Jedi mind powers. Well,
0: it's not that. It's that he is maybe in person. The, you know, the bareness of what his personality type is, is compelling. You know what I mean? In a way that Sarah doesn't feel when she hears it secondhand. And in a way that I, I, I weirdly do feel when I hear it thirdhand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what were this, you going to say, Toby? Uh,
2: again, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but this conversation, it, it does remind me a little bit, again, of Into the Wild, When John Krakower's kind of following uh, Chris McCandless, who who kind of went off the grid and sort of lived as a vagabond, as he follows Chris McCandless's movements around the country, like everybody he meets who interacted with Chris McCandless, is just very admiring of him and really— Enchanted by him. Yeah, yeah. And I think it comes across, I think, with Bo, too, is that there's this kind of sort of unguarded sincerity that they have when they talk about things. And I I mean, it comes through, at least to me, when Bo starts talking about, I I wanted to join the army, but I didn't want to join the modern army. And that's the kind of thing that I think most people would find kind of embarrassing, particularly at the end of everything he's gone through. But for Bo, it seems he's he's just, he just seems very unguarded, very sincere. And I think when people run into that... Because it's pretty unusual that it is charming, that it does bring about sympathy, and also I think you sort of instinctively trust people who seem more open than you would imagine yourself to be.
1: Okay, so we believe now that he has SPD, this schizotypal personality disorder. I think the big question for the four of us as the writers is so what? How does this play into the character that we know of Bo Bergdahl? Because, we're, look, we're not psychologists, and if you think we're trying to diagnose somebody in your family, go to a real doctor because that's not who we are. We're here to talk about the story. So we've been wondering about Bo Bergdahl. We, we know this. Let's assume for a second it's a fact. I mean the defense is saying that. What does this mean to us as our, for our main character? Does it answer everything? Is it important to the story? Can I answer that first? Go for it.
0: I think it's Sarah's way of closing the book on the Bo Bergdahl part of this story. That's what I think. I think we are not going to hear much about Bo's motivations anymore in the rest of the series. I think we're going to just be talking about the bigger picture from here on out. And this was her way of finishing this chapter of the story. Laura, Laura, what do you think?
3: I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I think, you know, what I've been thinking about is how, you know, obviously the Army is saying, so what, mental illness doesn't matter, basically, in their response to this defense uh, revelation. I'm really curious to see how this sort of issue is handled at, you know, in a military court as opposed to regular court. And if this is going to be seen as a mitigating factor or not, um, I'm, I'm really curious to see how it's handled. What about you, Toby?
2: You know, I think if you're if you're looking at Bo as a fictional character, it's a it's a really interesting question because it makes me think back to what you were talking about, the zooming in and zooming out. So if you're writing this as fiction, I think that's the big question around it is does having being mentally ill is that a reason? Is it an excuse? Can you separate that from Bo as a person? Are you the decisions you make regardless of what chemical imbalances you may have in your brain? You know, in some ways, if that's the question, to me, Kevin's question just now is kind of the best organizing question for the series so far that that I've heard. But if that really is the question, I I don't think she's done a very good job of sort of going about trying to tease that out.
3: I think the other question that maybe she's going to be posing to us is... Does the army bear some of the blame for what happened here because they let this guy in and are they going to accept some of the blame for what happened here?
1: So for, for me, and I know I know we use the four of us in artfully use the terms mental illness and personality disorder, and, you know, and interchangeably. we stupid. And, yeah. OK. We, right, we, <laughs> you should everybody. You should know that by now. Um, I think that what this does in the narrative is it gives an answer. As to what it is, it doesn't mean it's a great answer, but it does answer a question Who is Bo Bergdahl? Why is he like this? Boom. 48 hours ago, I hadn't heard of SPD. If I hadn't heard it in serial, I I could have said this email writer made it up.
0: And now we're back diagnosing characters in our previous books with SPD.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're like, doesn't (laughs) it? The paranoia, magical thinking, doesn't (laughs) it sound like uh, Seth? Yeah. But, you know, I think we always kind of need in. In fiction, to sort of have an answer for a motivation or for why. And if maybe this is a horrible example, the Hulk is the way the Hulk is because of gamma rays. I don't know anything about gamma rays, but it's an answer that satisfies that question and allows me to move on. In a way, it's kind of a MacGuffin. It's like it doesn't matter. We don't need to know all about the psychopathy of this personality disorder to just get that answered and move on with the rest of the story.
0: Okay, so I want to look forward a little bit now because I think that we sort of laid bare in these two episodes, Sarah's laid bare, what's going on with Bo, how he grew up, who he is, you know, this diagnosis that he has, this personality disorder, what his platoon thinks of him. We heard some softening from some of the guys. We even heard the guy who said he would have shot him say... Uh, I feel a little different. I mean, all of America now knows I (laughs) would have shot him. I still would.
1: I still would then.
0: Very charming, right? That guy. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, let's let's look forward now. Uh, We got a teaser for next week. It looks like we're going to be talking next week about, or in two weeks about, the efforts that the U.S. went through to get Bo back. So, Laura, Toby posted an article on our Facebook page that you know has some new revelations about what could potentially have happened within the government when Bo was missing when he was being held. You read that article, I know. Can you just let us know what that article said and whether or not you think that is going to play into what we're going
3: to learn in two weeks in the next episode of Serial? The main point was there's now some questions as to whether the U.S. paid some sort of ransom for Bo, and they've never come out and stated that. I don't know if they've actually denied it. Um, so that is is the question. You know, we obviously had the prisoner exchange for his release, but now there's the question of did we actually pay some sort of ransom? And I think that's probably where we're headed. I think
0: that would be very interesting given the government's policy on families collecting ransom for missing people and them saying you absolutely cannot do it. That would be a very interesting twist. Mm-hmm. Toby, um, we've sort of been promised since the beginning of this season that we would be zooming out and zooming out and zooming out. And instead, I think we've sort of been zooming in and zooming out in the story, going in and out. Do you think that narratively that works, structurally speaking and telling the story?
2: I think kind of yes and no. You know, I I think it's been pretty inconsistent, like my level of engagement with different episodes. Like I found these two episodes really interesting and maybe part of the reason why I found them really interesting is because all the stuff that's preceded them, uh, so maybe in that way it has worked. But I'm still left with, you know, what question are we trying to answer here? Like, I I still don't know what's kind of the heart of this, if if it's anything other than just here's some stuff that happened.
0: So let's get to the part of the episode where we grade the week's episode. What did you think in an overall grade parts one and two? Let's put them together. Hindsight. Toby, what grade would you give this package of episodes of Serial season two?
2: I wish I could go back and change some of my previous grades because I feel (laughs) like I'm constantly like not totally enthralled, but then I say like B plus or A minus. (laughs) so I think there's been some great inflation on my part. And part of it is just you compare it to other...
0: Other stuff you're you, listening other to? Other
2: stuff that that's on podcasts, and, it, and it's just put together so much better. And, you know, she's a compelling storyteller, even if it's not like prime serial. So on my new rating scale, I Which guess is what? Would, is your
0: new rating scale comparing serial to serial alone?
2: I, I No, I think it should be. So I guess I would give this a B,
3: OK, that's fair. What do you think, Laura? You know, I'm, I'm going for an A this time because I've been saying since we started season two, I want to know what his mental health diagnosis is. I want to know what's going on with him because I feel like that's a big part of this. And we have that information now. And I think we're also sort of gearing up for this question of does this diagnosis change the perception of not only listeners, but people in the military. And I think that that's going to be a really interesting question to examine as we go forward. Kevin, what do you think? Would you like to grade the episode for us?
0: Yeah,
1: I'll give part one a B and part two a B plus. Why? Well, I think it answered some of the questions. I mean, I don't think there was, you know, it wasn't as dramatic as some of the the other stuff. You know, the question about the structure and the, should you tell it in chronological order or flashback? And we're actually bouncing around a lot. I think that probably looking at it, it, probably had to go that way. I mean, there's like one or two episodes I would have flipped. But as far as, okay, you know, we got to start with him disappearing and what happened and then, you know, and then let's look back. You know, I did look back. It was important.
0: I think it was important too. I give the whole package an A minus. I loved hearing the Harrison's voices. I loved it. I loved hearing from that family. I loved getting to know them. I think that we get so caught up in the overarching story and where it's going that we don't stop and enjoy the moments that happen in the storytelling. And I think the interviews with the soldiers were compelling. I even think the little back and forth between Sarah and Mark was like, I mean, it got me riled up, so there was something there, you know? But that's
1: very serial.
0: It's very, very serial. I I enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying this season. So I think it's time to wrap this conversation up about this week's double episode of Serial. And let's move on to one of my favorite parts of our discussions every week, and that is the crime of the week. Now, this week, a federal magistrate judge ordered Apple to help the FBI hack into the phone of one of the San Bernardino shooters. Unlike previous requests by the feds to undo passwords and give access to accounts, which all providers have complied with, Apple says they don't have the ability and basically they're being ordered to create software to get around their own encryption. Apple basically says, you know what, they created encrypted phones for people because they wanted to deliver encrypted phones and they are trying to fight this order. Legal experts worry about the precedent here. Tech experts worry about the existence of any master key that could get anyone past that four-digit password and getting into somebody's iPhone. So this is obviously a very slippery slope, a sticky issue, one that's getting debated a lot right now. We're talking about the San Bernardino shooters here, so the stakes feel really high. I'd love to know what you guys think. Should Apple be forced to write this backdoor software? Should such a thing exist? Toby, what do you think?
2: Well, I think slippery slope Arguments are usually for when you can't really argue against the exact thing that you're trying to argue against, so you fall back on that. I think in this case, that's not true. I mean I think this really is a slippery slope situation where even if you think that it's right to get into the San Bernardino shooter's phone, that once people are given that kind of power. And even for the best of reasons, which is we're trying to save lives or whatever, I think it then becomes very, very tempting to try and get into everyone's phone or everyone of a certain type of person's phone. So because of that, I think it's I think it would be dangerous for Apple to cave.
1: Kevin, what do you think? Making this backdoor is like the nuclear bomb. You can't unmake it. And it's different. It's not just the four-digit code, because that's only 10,000 different combinations. The phone can detect when it's trying to be hacked, and it has all these built-in features to erase everything on the inside. And that's what we've dis- we said we want in a, in a phone. You know, the government can say if the door is locked and they have a warrant, they can ask you to take the key and unlock the door. What they can't do is ask you to go make a key that doesn't exist to open the door, or at least this is what they're attempting to do. It's like the FBI, if they can make it themselves, that's legal. To make Apple do it, I got a problem with that.
3: What do you think, Laura? Yeah, I think you know a lot of my defense attorney friends have been really fired up about this this week, and you know it does open the door. It's you know, like Kevin said, if they're making a key for something that doesn't have a key now, and obviously this is a situation where a lot of people are going to say, well, this is a situation we need this information, but now that we have the ability to get this information. Any prosecutor can file a motion in court and say, oh, well, in this case, it's really critical that we have this information from somebody's phone. And it's it's up to the discretion, um, judge by judge. And, you know, who knows what could happen? And, and I just think that it's, a, you know, opening the door to something that could really turn out badly. Well,
0: you know, you all have made very weighty arguments. So I'll throw mine in there. I don't want my kids to know that this key doesn't exist because they believe that I can get into their phones anytime (laughs) I want to. So while I may have an opinion on the legal side of it, can we just make sure my kids don't read any of this stuff? Don't let them
1: download this
2: episode. (laughs) Yeah, don't let them listen to the podcast.
0: All right, we should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to reach you on Twitter and interact with you, how can they find you there? It's at Laura Bricker. It's L-A-R-A. And what about you, Toby Ball? What is your Twitter handle?
2: At Toby Ball
1: N-H.
0: And Kevin, if our listeners want to tweet to you, How may they do so?
1: Oh, they've been doing it at Kevin P. Flint.
0: And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer, tweet us or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Crime Writers On Serial. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at CrimeWritersOn.com. Or you can please support our podcast there as well. You can make a donation on PayPal or Stripe. Leave a review on iTunes. It keeps the podcast on the charts so people can find us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you
3: next week. I felt like Amos. we were back in season one, where she's actually giving us her opinion. Oh, hold on. My cat just jumped over...
1: My laptop. Are you all still there? Yeah. We're here.
3: <laughs> oh my God, that was scary.
1: Mark down the cat as a special guest. Stampy. In the stampy
3: oh, stampy makes an appearance. I know. He's really mad because he can't go
1: out. Take that, um. Mr. Beans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should have a Stampy Mr. Beans like face off, you know. Stampy. The cat smackdown. Mr. Beans, though, I'm not a huge cat person. Mr. Beans is a
1: gorgeous. Only cat. one pussy will survive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Laura, are you familiar with Mr. Beans? No. Is that is, is this your cat? That's no, Robbie's,
2: cat. Robbie's cat.
0: Robbie cat. Okay, Chaudhary is superstar, like purebred, gorgeous, <coughs> gorgeous, gorgeous, beautifully behaved cat that is a social media superstar.
1: Well, I think um, it's a good place for a clean edit, huh?
3: Yeah, no, no, we only have a feral cat here turned house cat. It's like little orphan Annie. But, Levy, um, what was the, What was the question? again? <laughs>